Hey, good morning. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. May 9th, Tuesday. So that means we get to talk about good things that can happen in our political life. Like, can there be a political future that involves kids? Can we, can we make some decisions now for the people of the future? Because, you know, as I've been saying since 1983, I believe the children are our future. I uh, knew that was coming. Yeah. You did? You saw that yeah, coming? If, Am I, is it that? Teach them well and let them lead the way. Let them lead the way. Here's the thing about kids. And look, I'm all for kids. I was one once, which is my point. Back when that song was, you know, kicking around, I was sort of a kid. You two were really kids. And a little while later, they're not kids anymore. They turn into adults. So uh, that's... That's the thing, yeah, about uh, well, doing work with, with kids. Thank if you, you have for, a 20-year plan to work you with for kids. explaining human growth and development to us, Doug. I'm just sorry. First, out. you're a kid, and then you're not a kid <laughs> anymore. That's why people tune into the right. Common Good podcast, because we are bringing these scintillating drops of information. How again does this happen? Then you're not a kid. Then you're not a kid. Here's my point. Which we'll talk to you more with the uh, with the pediatrician and doctor Annie Andrews here uh, in a, in a little bit second second half of the of our time together. Um, sometimes we use titles like kids or adults as if uh, it's something other than just a description of a person in a particular stage of development. Right? When you leave out kids, you're just leaving out people because. Uh, Sometimes we we make precious certain stages of development, and it doesn't it just doesn't service service very well. So that's the thing. It's it's not like a kid focus is different than a adult focus or different than a future focus. It's just it's caring for people, and when we leave people out, yeah. bad things happen. So we're going to talk about that today. But uh, this is this is Doug living. I I live in a place where uh, I also lived when I was a kid. So, you know, I'm stuck. Maybe the rest of you have found a way out of, you know, the prison of your childhood, but I haven't. Rob Ryersey currently uh, hold a way outside of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, Rob, uh, it was not your childhood home, though. Your, no, your... no. My childhood home was Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up uh, in the idyllic suburbs on the uh, east side of Cleveland, Ohio, less than a mile from the the glorious shores of Lake Erie. And oh. uh, yeah. Would ride my uh, would ride my bike around our little town of our little suburb of Willowick, Ohio, and uh, you know it was, it was glorious. Well, when I was a kid, we talked about that part of Ohio because the rivers were on fire. Is that the right place? Is that the same? <laughs> am, am, am I remembering the mistake on the lake? Mistake by the lake and the rivers on yeah, fire. Mistake on the lake. Yeah. Snake. Yeah. 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 The armpit of America. I know. I've heard it all. I know, and I've never found it that way. I found Cleveland yeah. to be a lovely place. I mean, I, I didn't Absolutely. go there when I was, you know, in the state of childhood, but uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. By the '90s, it it seemed like a just a lovely place. And Dan's in uh, in West Michigan. That's right. Hi, Dan. Hi. I'm going to be joined uh, by someone from South Carolina. Dr. Andy a Annie Andrews is going to join us here in a, in a little bit. Um, but before that, we have a little bit of news to uh, to catch up on. Yeah. Um, could it, lots before we happen. before we jump into the news, could we just could we just say one thing? Uh, I got a message this morning from a friend who was listening to last week's podcast um, this morning, and he said that every time we said a particular word on the podcast, because we were talking about AI and different. I, I I don't remember what we were talking about last week, but he said every time we said a, a particular word on the podcast that his phone would respond and react to that. Um, and so um, this wow. one is, is just for you, Keith. Um, just want to say, hey, Siri, just so <laughs> just so Keith's phone opens up yes. and you know Siri starts talking yeah. to him. So. Yeah. Hey Siri, call my mom. There you go. <laughs> mine, mine literally woke up and things started doing something around here. You can't. Your mother has passed away. Um, hey, uh, it can feel to a lot of people like talking about the voting side of politics in May a year not where there's a presidential election can seem a long way out. But uh, I'll tell you, things are, uh, things are stirring up in the, yeah. what will be the, the 
political season. So around here, just so people know, in the Vote Common Good world, I mean, it, it, like Memorial Day, the year before uh, an election, that is that is go oh. time. I mean, we are we're, we're we're like the people in Holland, Michigan. They're thinking about tulips in you know December. Like it's 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 tulip time around here. So we are we are up to it. So some of the reasons we're going to be talking about the things we talk about is because we want people to start getting themselves ready to make the common good the voting criteria. I, I've had a conversation, you guys, with three or four friends in the last week who've all been saying the same thing. They're from religious environments. They would be in the category of evangelicals, the kind of people we like to do outreach for. We'll say things like, look, Donald Trump, biggest mistake this country ever made, horrible, can't happen again. But, gal, I cannot get it. I mean, Joe Biden also, I mean, just about as bad. Like, I've heard so many people making this, like, equating, um, and 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 I know the background of uh, all these folks, and they f they're the people they represent the people I was worried about, which is Trump drove them away from their Republican identity, but they've never become comfortable yes. with something that you'd call up a, a Democratic identity. They're still these in between homeless, politically homeless people, and um, they're just trying to find a a reason to be anything but frustrated yeah. that we could have a you know a sequel to the 2020 uh, election which just feels super depressing to them and yeah. i don't know that that probably bodes worse for biden than it does for anybody else and so i yeah. don't know if you guys are hearing that but i just really hear it in the yeah in the i i think you're right i you know i but i was thinking about the uh the old song of breaking up is hard to do and uh you know when when you are I, like it's just really difficult to shift away from something and when a relationship has been your identity or your world's revolved around it and you break and like something happens and you break up and like a lot of breakups don't stick you know yeah, and sure. uh and you know they get back together and i think we're gonna see that with you know that that trump caused folks to have a a certain percentage of folks to have a bit of a breakup with the Repub their the Republican Party, their Republican identity. The question becomes like how many of those, you know, are gonna stick? And mm -hmm. uh and I think there's you know, is the more that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and and all of them um kind of become the more of the face of the Republican party um, that I think makes it more likely that they'll, that, that, that breakup will stick. If there's a kinder, gentler approach from a, a Ron DeSantis or a Asa mm -hmm. Hutchinson or something like if a Nikki Haley, a Tim Scott, if, if somebody like that emerges, uh, I think the rubber band, snaps back really easily and 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 it it will i think it will feel in some ways like we're back to square one in terms of the work that we're doing you think even yep. a desantis like desantis seems almost trying to be more extreme than trump he's trying to be more anti-woke yeah, more aggressively yeah. like he's yeah but fights it's with not disney it's not the, well <laughs> christians have been picking fights with disney forever i mean i yeah, when i true, like true. i mean we we're boycotting disney has been a things like since i was in <laughs> high school like that's not you know that's just taking a playbook from the southern baptist convention um mm -hmm. so i i think it's we i think it's less the policies yeah and more the approach or the mm -hmm. attitude and and there's even, you know, I mean, like we could look at someone like DeSantis and just be like, this guy is a goofball. He's and he's a goofball in terms of like his demeanor and his policies are horrible. I think I think if you put yourself in the mindset of a of a conservative Christian Republican who's a little queasy about Trump, mm -hmm. 
I think it's real easy to see Ron DeSantis as a wonderful alternative. For sure. Well, somebody who's not uh, confident that that Trump is the guy is Liz Cheney, uh, Mm -hmm. three-time Trump voter, it turns out. But she's changed her changed her mind now so she's you know for a lot of people it was after january 6th that she really turned on him she was she was okay with him in november of 2020 and cast her vote for him so a lot of people are in that category where you know the liz cheney's and adam kissinger's and these others find themselves but she's now committed herself to making sure donald trump can't be control of the party that she felt like she was a part of so it's a bit of a good for america she really does believe this and a little bit fight for the soul of her political party. So do with that, you know, what, what somebody wants. But she has launched a television ad today. So she, after losing her uh, seat to a Trump-backed candidate in her home state, which tells you something about where her power lies versus, versus the Trump mega movement, at least in, in her state, that she's out and the Trump-backed person is in. So that's freed Liz Cheney up then to go about and do some other political work. So she's put together a political group that has this new ad out, and I know you two haven't seen it yet, uh, but uh, I saw it and thought it was was worth talking about. And so uh, this came out this morning. It's making a bit of news. So Liz Cheney is trying to do all she can to make sure Donald Trump cannot keep the hearts and minds of the Republican base. And uh, here it is. Donald Trump is the only president in American history who has refused to guarantee the peaceful transfer of power. Joe Biden he lost the election and he knew it. To become the president. He betrayed millions of Americans by telling them the election we was stolen. Stop the steal. He ignored the rulings of dozens of courts. Rather than accept his defeat, he mobilized a mob to come to Washington and march on the Capitol. Then he watched on television while the mob attacked law enforcement, invaded the Capitol, and hunted the vice president. He refused for three hours to tell the mob to leave. There has never been a greater dereliction of duty by any president. Trump was warned repeatedly that his plans for January 6th were illegal. He didn't care, and today he celebrates those who attacked our Capitol. Donald Trump has proven he is unfit for office. Donald Trump is a risk America can never take again. The Great Task is responsible for the content of this advertising. So she's got this group called The Great Task, and uh, which is, I think, a line borrowed from from Lincoln. So, you know, she's, she's got aspirations mm-hmm. uh, in what she's up to and clearly trying to frame the anti-Trump movement from election day forward, right? Fair enough. That's her own story. That's, that's her commitment. You know, some of us could put together a supercut of yeah any particular day from uh you know coming down the escalator until election day but f- fair enough if somebody picks the dates after the election i'm glad you know glad to glad to have her in the in the anti-trump crowd but i think that's kind of interesting that there she is i mean obviously liz cheney has hooked her wagon to the january 6th yeah storyline as i watched that video it felt to me like it felt a little nostalgic, um, a little. I felt a little wistful for the January sixth commission days um, when we would live stream those and, and watch them, uh, because Liz Cheney would deliver. I mean, that's that felt exactly like an opening statement from a January sixth hearing, you know, mm-hmm. with all the same footage, but this time with violins in the background, you know. <laughs> so, I'm um, like, well done good Liz Cheney's trying to run for president you know I like huh. this is this feels in, to me in 2028 like, you're, you're saying are you are you thinking in 2024 is this are you suggesting in your mind this could be the launch of a bid how this stuff works is there's people hmm. test the waters in a few ways one is they write a book and they go on a book tour um you know which crazily has a lot of stops in Iowa usually uh, <laughs> and uh you know, because I'm big. They love books out know, there. Oh, big book readers in Iowa, um, and uh, and so like that's one way. The other way is to do something like this and to see how it hits. And you know, there's a bit of a trial balloon kind of thing where you see, okay, what's the appetite for this? And mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I, Liz Cheney clearly, in my mind, clearly has aspirations, and I'm you know. She would be infinitely better than Donald Trump, right? 
you know, but I, I think that's what we're seeing here is, you know, she's got a, I think she's got a bit of a personal vendetta against Trump. Uh, but then she also has aspirations and seeing what kind of appetite there is for the, yeah, the, the not Trump lane, you know, how that might exist. So, right. If you could, I, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm not advising Liz Cheney to be president if she ran and we got beyond Trump, I would have real issues with not wanting Liz Cheney to be, to be president. Um, it would put me in a hard spot because I was asking a lot of my friends to vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and set aside things because I thought a woman president was an important statement and we still need that in the United States. And that was a major yeah. factor that I thought was and is important. So I would be in a tough spot. And I think that's what could make her a very attractive candidate if she were to run. There would be people who would normally vote for Biden who might give her a chance yes. as the anti, the truest anti-Trump sort of uh, person. Thinking uh, that maybe a true Republican conservative deep in their heart would be better than just a populist, you know, anti-democracy Republican sellout uh kind of person so it would be hey i'm the true conservative you all should should consider voting for me because at least i stand for something like the the republican party has become so whittled down as to really not holding to anything short of abortion bans and making sure that everybody who uh is within you know driving distance of a gun shop can go buy a gun on any given day short of that it doesn't feel like there's there's much that that the party is is really committed mm -hmm. to so yeah i could totally see i could totally see that happen it really doesn't feel like any of the other republican presidential candidates have caught a little bit of fire though that people are yeah. talking it up and and I, granted look tim scott could be that one south you know we're going to be in a south carolina theme here because uh, dr annie andrews is going to join us here in a minute from south carolina uh but tim scott's a Republican senator from South Carolina, and he's apparently running, is going to announce the, yep. the formal uh, joining, formal joining fellow South Carolinian Nikki Haley, former governor yeah. of South Carolina. We're South Carolina heavy in on the Republican side yeah. this time around. Yeah, it's funny happened to Jindal. Where's that guy? Speaking of South Carolina, he was, South he Carolina was from guy? no, he was Louisiana. Yeah, Bobby Jindal. Yeah, he he did that terrible response to the to right. the State of the Union and yeah was forever banished from public life. Yeah, that's your yeah. one shot. Don't blow so it. Marco Rubio. But Cheney positioning herself as the anti-Trump after four years of voting for everything that Trump wanted and <laughs> is really like, I mean, I'm glad she put her foot down when it came to insurrection. Uh, yeah. But everything up to that point, she was like, yeah. well, uh, I'm not happy about it, yeah. but I'm going to vote for it and provide political cover for it. So, yep. yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. I think I think you're right. Some people in the chat are asking, look, if, uh, you know, a little fever dream here for some people. Hey, let's say <laughs> somehow it happens that Joe Biden doesn't end up running. You know, he's announced it now. But, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. Something in the next mm -hmm. year comes up. Yeah. Who, who comes swooping in? Well, at this point, unfortunately, Gavin Newsom, un unfortunately or fortunately, it would it would only be Kamala Harris. I mean, if not now, mm. at some point, because to put an operation together to operationalize a system uh, to be on the ballot in every state, have the structure in every state, it would be extremely difficult I am, if we get, I am, if we get much, much further down the road no, I am, uh, than where we are I, now. I totally disagree with you. I think Gavin Newsom, the governor of California is putting together the shadow campaign currently. I mean, he was two yeah. weeks ago. He was here. He was here in Arkansas. Like he has been. Gavin Newsom has very quietly been moving yep. around the country, putting together that very apparatus. He was very involved in the in the midterm elections, donating tons of money to Democratic candidates, and and you know, well, I say buying loyalty. Um, you know, yeah. giving people a reason to be loyal to him. Um, Gavin Newsom is like the, um, like I, and, and you know, Jim's saying he's a horrible leader. I, I, I have no opinion on that. I'm just saying he is the one on the democratic side who is building the, the yeah. necessary apparatus that if something happens with Joe Biden, that, you know, 
he would Gavin Newsom would make would be it would be very very difficult for anybody else to mobilize like he would besides the vice president Kamala Harris. Yeah, but yeah, he might be the uh, it, yes. But look, we get you get any closer, and the internal politics inside of these systems for the for the democratic structure to not just keep going with the Biden Harris process because. It, to outsiders, it can seem like, you know, oh, well, boy, it doesn't matter if it's a Starbucks or a Pete's coffee or a caribou coffee. Like, I don't know. That's all inside those worlds. There's a huge difference between Pete's, Starbucks and, and caribou, you know, and there's an enormous difference between these candidates and who is working on their teams and staff and what they've been laying out in, in state. Because it's one thing to have your team together. It's another thing to be prepared in every state to be on the ballot, yeah. which is why third-party candidates have such a difficult yes. time. Yeah. It is so very, not only uh, dollar expensive, it is time expensive and it's relationally yeah. expensive. Yeah. And yeah, at some point, I mean, this is why, look, if people think that, that, these folks are all starting too early. This is not starting too early. If you think about what you would have to do to put together an operation to uh, literally be just be on the ballots in every state. Yeah. At some point, it, it becomes very difficult to do if you yeah. don't have that infrastructure. So the system would have to go with you. And man, it's going to be tough now that they've announced Biden-Harris. It's going to be extremely tough. Yeah, if Joe Biden weren't to run, but look, I don't even think that's going to happen at, at this point. I mean, I don't yeah. think there's a chance. I, I'm I'd be glad to vote for Joe Biden, but I wish he would have said one term was enough after my career and after my age. And the goodness is in the is in the Democratic Party. The goodness isn't only in me. I, I just wish that had been the had been the case. Um, yeah, I think totally agree. Maybe it's true. Uh, I just don't think it's. I don't think it's the case. And, and look, this is the thing about how politics uh, works. Is some ways we should all know this and recognize this. It's systems and people and and power and all that. It's also people. It really is individual people sitting behind keyboards and getting in cars and being in coffee shops and being on phone calls and Zoom meetings that make this stuff happen. That's, that's why we're going to get to talk to Annie Andrews in a bit. And she's somebody who ran for Congress and uh, now is finding another way to continue to serve in public spaces. You just have to keep working at this stuff and yes. really make yeah. and create the the space. It's because yeah. it's, yeah. it's hard in America because it's look, especially to progressives and liberals, like I'd put myself in this category. We tend to think about systemic problems and systemic solutions. Conservatives tend to think about people doing great things and individual leaders making things happen. It is a bit of both. I think the conservatives are right on this one, though. It really is people that make the magic, that make the magic happen. Uh, and then the systems and structures respond to individuals. And if you don't want to buy that, just think about how some clown show of danger like Donald Trump came in with almost zero structural support. The Republican Party was fully opposed to his him as a candidate when he came down that escalator and just rallied up people by celebrity and 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 money and yeah. and and message and all the rest. It's and Bernie Sanders another one. I mean, the fact that most of us know the yes. name Bernie Sanders yeah. is not because we're so proud of the Bernie Sanders bill. There's there isn't there isn't one. We're proud of Bernie Sanders because he just went out with a, as a force of nature and said, "I'm not even a Democrat, and I want the Democratic nomination." Right? Like he's not a systemic power guy. He is a, a, a person, and man, and and Biden is kind of the other side of that, right? In a lot of ways, mm -hmm. he's like, "I've been the guy in the system since I was 28 or 29, and I've worked my way up." And you know, he's that guy, and yeah. Uh, so I, it, 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 it's easy to yeah. say, let's, let's fix the system. And it's harder to, it's harder to do without somebody who people get excited about because in the United States, we're not a parliamentary system. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All goodness. Yes. Uh, I'll we tell don't you. vote for a party and then pick a leader of the party like they do in the parliamentary right. system. We pick a leader and then go with that party. That's how, yeah. um, that's how, how we do it in a representative form of democracy. Yeah. And Doug, I'll, I'll tell you somebody that, I get excited about, um, watch this transition. Uh, one of our, one of our favorite candidates from the midterm elections in 2022, you know, we feel sometimes a little bit like, you know, we've got, we've, you know, as a parent, 
you know, you've got your kids and then you got your favorite kid, right? Like you're not supposed to, right? Come on. You, <laughs> you both, you both have children. You're both shaking nope. your heads. Cause you know, yeah, Dan, Dan's denying it because you have to deny it. <laughs> but you know, you know that you've got your favorite. And, uh, and I, I always felt like that throughout the, uh, the midterms that like, I love all of our candidates for common good, all of the folks that we're working with, but then I, a few that I mm-hmm. maybe loved a little bit more. And uh, and our guest today is one of them, uh, Dr. Annie Andrews, and I, who has started a uh, some new work and uh, so excited that we have Annie back on the, uh, the podcast to talk about that. Yeah. So Dr. Annie Andrews from South Carolina, welcome. It's great to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, uh, Annie, the other night I was watching... Uh, MSNBC late at night on a, on a weekend says something about me, mm. uh, and what's going on. And actually I came in the room and it was on, uh, and my wife was there and she said, wow, this, this, this person is really great. You should listen to her. She's talking about you on MSNBC. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's, uh, and, and, um, I got super excited about that. Took a picture, sent it to Rob and Dan said, Hey, this is really great that Annie's doing this project called their future, our vote. Um, and uh, you were great on MSNBC, and congratulations on this um, on this organization and the pack that goes with it to to to, to make this work happen. So, um, t- tell us about it. I heard I saw one of your videos where you said this is the first time that a like a political pack exists to benefit kids, um, and that 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 was uh, I thought that was very insightful. So so tell us about the um, their future our vote organization. Yeah. Pack. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and talk about that. I'm glad you saw me on MSNBC. Um, You know, for me, running for Congress was never about Annie Andrews being in Congress. It was about giving kids a voice in Washington, D.C. And at the time, running for Congress against Nancy Mace seemed like the best path to do that. So that's why I ran. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, I was unsuccessful on the campaign front and on election night, I knew that my fight wasn't over because kids still didn't have a voice in Washington, D.C. So I very quickly pivoted to their future, our vote. And, you know, the story behind it is that as a pediatrician and a mom of three kids, I was shocked to learn that kids really don't have any political power in Washington, D.C. And, you know, the um, the cynic will say that's because they don't have money and they can't vote. So why would we invest our time and energy trying to give them a voice in D.C.? Um, but that's not good enough for me as a parent and a pediatrician. I know we can do better. And I know so many people across this country believe that our children deserve a voice in Washington. But the only way to make that happen is to show up and bring that political muscle, which sadly in this day and age really means bringing money to support candidates. So we knew if we were going to do this, not only did we want to be loud and proud with our child advocacy, but we knew we needed to raise political money to support candidates to really force the issue, to force them to put children front and center during their policy discussions, during their campaigns. And that's how we move the needle. So that's what we're doing. Well, it's it's really great. Uh, And for some people, when they hear political pack, they've been told their whole life, that's a bad thing, right? Uh, We were sort of joking before we came on and I said, uh, you know, a political pack for kids is like the candy cigarette of politics, right? It's trying to get kids uh, uh, loaded up uh, to a lot of people, right? They think because they hear this, we get get big money out of politics. We don't want lobbyists. We don't want PACs. Like that is a part of the the narrative that that people say all the time. That that's the problem. The problem are lobbyists. And I was lobbying in in D.C. two weeks ago. Or the problem is our PACs, and we're not going to take PAC money. So I would imagine there's some explaining that you need to do when you say no. I'm starting a pack and an organization to do work and then a pack to deliver money to candidates, that that's a good thing and not the problem. Can you just talk about that for people for whom they don't keep up with all the ins and outs of how money moves through politics and what makes a good pack and a troublesome pack or, or how you think about all that? That's a really important question. So I'm glad you asked that. And, you know, before my campaign, I was 
total political outsider. And that's my response. That would have been my response to the term PAC. Like, aren't PACs bad? Isn't that the problem? Aren't PACs the problem? You know, the problem are our current campaign finance laws, but they are our current campaign finance laws. So we have to play by those rules. And if we don't, we're just ceding victory to the other side. As a candidate, I took a no corporate PAC money pledge. And that's what, in my opinion, the majority, or in my view, the majority of Democratic candidates do. So there are, in, you know, these are my words, there are big bad corporate PACs out there that, you know, are standing in the way of action on climate change, standing in the way of action on gun violence, standing in the way of action of preserving our voting rights. But then there are a lot of PACs out there that are trying to do good. So we're playing by the their rules. And we know that their rules mean we have to show up in DC with money. So to do that, we have to raise money talking about the issues that matter to us. So there's fantastic packs for climate change, for women's reproductive freedom, but there was never a pack for kids. And that's exactly what we are. So we have to do the advocacy piece, the policy piece. There's already great organizations that are doing a lot of that, like the American Academy of Pediatrics and First Focus. But where we're going to step in and supplement and complement that work is with that political money. And there is nothing glamorous about raising political money. There's a reason no one has done it before. It is tedious. It is hard. But I am so committed to doing this because if anyone deserves a seat at the table in Washington, D.C., it's our kids. Yeah. So Annie, you mentioned that there's really kind of two things that you're going to be focused on. One is advocacy for for issues related to um, kids and, and, and their future. And then the second is is the political work. Could you dive into those, you know, with a little bit more specificity, you know, give us a sense of like, what, what does that advocating work look like? What are what are the issues that you're talking about? And I'm thinking in particular of I think a picture I saw, I don't know, on Instagram or Twitter or somewhere of you in Washington, DC, meeting with your Congresswoman who you had just ran a congressional race against, um, which, you know, takes a certain kind of boldness all its own. Um, so it's a, could you tell us about what that advocacy work looks like? Yeah. So, you know, we, I would say essentially every issue that's discussed in Washington, DC, and we're really focused at the federal level as we start as a new organization. So Every issue that's discussed in Washington, D.C. is a children's issue, and you can boil it down to which side is good for kids and which side is not. But we knew we needed to have some focus. And so we are focusing on six core issues, which are very big bucket issues. But to, to think about it this way, we're focusing on ensuring every child has access to quality, affordable health care, addressing gun violence with common sense gun legislation, assuring every child has access to a quality public education, urgent action on climate change, because if we don't pass down a healthy planet to our children, we have certainly failed our children. Strengthening our democracy, because in that same vein, if we don't pass down a healthy democracy or a democracy at all to our children, we have certainly failed our children. And then addressing child hunger and poverty. So our goal is to get the average voter, specifically voters like me, women with children, school-age children, but every voter to understand that there is a direct link between between their children's well-being and their vote and what's happening in Washington, D.C. So that when a voter walks into the voting booth on election day and they want to vote in the in a way that is in the best interest of their children, we will have made it really clear to them to them what that means. So that is our goal. We need to be incredibly public facing. We need to have strong, consistent, persistent messaging so that voters understand if they care about their kids and they care about these six core issues, they need to look at candidates who are on this side of the, those issues. So we'll communicate to voters, you know, via paid and earned media with the social media campaigns. We're going to do candidate report cards. Um, we'll do, we'll have an endorsement process and we will do everything we can to educate voters about that link between federal policy and their children. We will also, like we already have been doing, is you know spend time in D.C. talking to lawmakers about why they should care so much about these issues. And I have to say, as a former candidate, I believe it is politically savvy and beneficial to lead with children. You know, who doesn't want to feel like what they're doing is good for kids? Like it's kind of a no-brainer. 
Yeah. Well, my neighbor across the street, John, doesn't doesn't think kids are good. He yells at them in the street. Uh, yeah. So you're right. Other than that guy, um, I, I, I'm about to start the, a puppies pack. You know, just to you know, to, <laughs> to compete with you for the uh, the heartstrings. And he tells, what was it like meeting your con like you know going and visiting your congresswoman after having challenged her in, in an election? I'm just what how tell us about that personally. So you know, again, it was never about me beating Nancy, it's, it was about me giving kids a voice. And as you both know, one of my core issues as a child advocate is addressing our gun violence public health crisis. And so there was a shooting in our district on the island where my congresswoman lives, you know, just several weeks ago where, you know, a bunch of teenagers on the beach and multiple youth were shot. And in the wake of, you know, that mass shooting, she made comments to reporters that she is tired of the partisanship. She will sit down and talk to anyone about mm -hmm. this issue. Now, keep in mind that during the most recent primary election cycle, she had ads holding assault rifles. She had door hangers that said Nancy loves guns. She brags about her NRA A plus rating. She voted against the bipartisan community, Safer Communities Act. So she doesn't have a great issue, a great record on the issue of guns. But here she was saying she'd talk to anybody. And here I am, her former opponent, gun violence prevention researcher, pediatrician, and gun violence prevention advocate. And I said, pick me, I'll talk to you. Let's sit down. <laughs> um, and, you know, I said that publicly on Twitter and, you know, local reporters picked it up and, um, Honestly, a lot of people in my world down here didn't think she'd take the meeting, but she took the meeting. And so, of mm. course, I'm going to go because my yeah. goal is to solve this problem. I will sit yeah. in a room with anybody, including my former opponent who called me a child abuser. I don't mm. care. If it gets us to the end goal, which is, you know, universal background checks and secure storage laws and whatever, like I'll sit and talk to anybody. So it's about the issue and the solutions for me. We had an honest conversation about the issue. I went to her office, we sat down, and we talked about the issue. We don't see eye to eye on almost anything. And on this issue specifically, her priorities are not in line with mine, but there are some really big, important things that we actually do agree on that I learned in that meeting. And so I left that meeting with hope that she sees the opportunity to become a leader within her party and change the narrative because you all were very tuned into my race. So you know that she is on TV, cable news all the time. She has the platform to change the conversation within her party and to get people within her party to move on something like background checks. And I left that meeting hopeful that she sees that and that she's going to do that for us. Annie, can we, like, can we talk about the, the gun uh, guns specifically and what needs to be to be done. It, you're so good on this. You understand it at a, a personal level, a professional level, a research level. Uh, so I think you're really a, a great resource uh, on this. We have statistics that, that you know, we're, we're putting up now about how the United States is a standout to all the other nations that we'd be compared to on the things that the United States is compared to. And gun violence is uniquely a United States issue. But it's also because there's just so many guns in the United States and a culture of guns in the United States, um, uh, a movement. Uh, I mean, I'm very familiar with the NRA. I've been to their convention. I've walked on the floor. I get their magazine because I want to pay attention to what they're saying and messaging. Got kicked is, out of their prayer breakfast. Yeah, got got, got you know, escorted <laughs> and kicked out of the prayer breakfast when we asked them to pray for the victims of um, a mass murder uh, in Texas uh, the week before. So like uh, we're up on it. Um, can you just uh, look, I, I know the typical talking points, right? Let's have uh, background checks. Let's um, let's make sure that we put trigger locks on things. Those seem to be issues that solve some of the problems in gun violence of which there are criminals doing criminal things. And we don't want criminals to buy guns. Um, a child accidentally getting their hands on a gun. But it feels like the thing most of us are terrified by is someone legally walking into a place with no criminal history, buying a gun, an AR-15 style weapon, and then using that weapon in a, and now we can name every part of civil society from congressional baseball games to country music festivals, schools, temples, synagogues, churches, personal homes, shopping malls, movie theaters, just go on and on and on. Um, 
it feels like what the country wants to say is we can't have these weapons anymore. Um, okay, that's a lot. Can we? Where are you on all that? Because I feel like if we get, we can get background checks and trigger uh, uh, locking devices and stuff, and still have the primary problem that scares most people is that innocent people are going to be shot and killed by other people who currently have the right to buy a weapon that's designed as an assault rifle. Is, is, is there, so what are you thinking about all that? You know, I think we have to think of it like we think of other public health problems and that there's not going to be any one solution. You know, we have to have a comprehensive, multi-layered public health approach that involves laws. It also involves, you know, doctors speaking up and talking to our patients about these things. So I'm with you. You know, you think about what a background check system would do. And it won't prevent a lot of these, you know, mass shootings from happening, but it will prevent some because when they walk in to buy their gun, they will have to have a background check and whether they have serious mental health problems in their history or a criminal record or whatever, they will be prevented from buying that gun. Um, You know, waiting periods are helpful because some of these impulses are very impulsive and the, the impulse to create this chaos through a mass shooting can pass in some time. So we need universal background checks first and foremost, because over 50% of the gun sales in this country occur without a background check. And that will prevent a lot of the multitude of types of shootings we have in this country, which are, you know, suicides, homicides, mass shootings, school shootings, et cetera. We need that first and foremost. That is my legislative priority. But I agree with you. The more we see assault weapons used in these mass shootings, those assault weapons were designed to kill a lot of people quickly. We have heard horrific details about what the victims at Uvalde looked like and what the victims of this most recent shooting in Allen, Texas looked like. Children without faces. I mean, what is more horrific than that? So I believe that the national temperature about assault weapons is also changing and there will be more and more legislative discussion about an assault weapons ban because we are tired of living in terror. Like we are all being psychologically traumatized every day we go to the grocery store and the movie theater and the mall and our drop our kids off at school. So I think we have to do so many things differently. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was the beginning of a tipping point in my view. And if someone like my GOP representative who less than a year ago was posing with assault weapons is now talking about background checks, the naively optimistic pediatrician in me is saying that this is, this yeah. is um, a sign that we are, we are reaching this tipping point. Mm-hmm. We can have a watershed moment on this issue in this country. And always we have to remember that 90% of us agree on this issue. The only place we don't agree is in the halls of the US Congress. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I feel throughout the presidential campaign of 2016 and then into the Trump presidency, I, I, you know, what I always say, oh, this is the thing that's going to wake people up. Oh, mm-hmm. this is the thing that it's the access Hollywood tape. And then it's this, and then it's that. And like, you just keep thinking like, okay, this is the thing that, and it just never, it just never happens. And I, and I feel very similarly about, these you know tragic situations that happen with gun violence that it's just like oh the sandy hook will be the thing you know like oh this will that this will be the thing and and i what what gives you that optimism that we're reaching a tipping point that will move us in the right direction as opposed to we are just on a inevitable you know, downward spiral to a, to a hellscape society that none of us are going to want to live in. I mean, several really objective things give me the optimism. And one is the 14 Republican senators who voted for that bill. You know, Lindsey Graham Mm -hmm. voted for a gun safety bill that would have been unheard of in 2010. Another Mm -hmm. objective fact is that when the Sandy Hook shooting occurred, 
there was absolutely no counterpoint to the NRA in our political landscape. And since then, because of organizations like Moms Demand Action and others, we have an army of grassroots volunteers all across this country who will drop everything to show up at their state capitals, their city council meetings, or show up in Washington, D.C. and use their voices to fight for change. You know, Moms Demand Action has a pretty incredible record of fighting back against the NRA's agenda in a lot of state houses. And that did not exist 15 years ago, 13 years ago when Sandy Hook happened. And so it feels like nothing has changed. It feels like things are getting worse, but there are pieces in place now and there are legislative signs that things are changing. And then the other more subjective point is I just spent the past year on the campaign trail talking to a lot of white suburban Christian Republican women who voted for me, obviously not enough of them, but they were leaving the Republican Party on the issue of guns. They didn't leave on the issue of abortion. They left on the issue of guns because they, like me, drop their kids off at school every day, look at their faces and wonder if today's going to be the day that they don't get to pick their kids up at the end of the day. So this is an issue that is turning them, changing the minds of suburban white women. And um, we need those women if we're going to have electoral success in 2024 and 2026 and beyond. It it seems to me, I mean, I I love your framing of this as a public health crisis. And one of the great health crises affecting children in the 1970s was lead, um, lead in gasoline and lead in paint. And the way we solved lead being put into the air and the water was to ban cars that needed to run unlead gasoline, right? Um, when when unleaded gas came out for old people that remember this, the size of the hose, the nozzle was a different size, so you couldn't accidentally put it in your lead stuff in your tank. Like made it impossible, and then slowly just got rid of the thing that was causing the problems. Yeah. If we know that people with mental illness are shooters, which I don't even know is true. I think more people with mental illness are victims of gun violence than are perpetrators of it. But even so, we're not going to get rid of people and we're not going to get rid of mental illness. But the thing we could get rid of is the actual guns that people are using. And I understand that people have an argument about the Second Amendment. They interpret right to bear arms to equal the right to have a gun, which is an interesting determination in and of itself. But we already don't let people carry every kind of gun. Doesn't it feel like an assault rifle ban uh, or whatever phrasing technically we put on it because assault rifle is a term of art. It's not a technical term, right? But a a rapid fire magazine delivery system kind of thing. Uh, Is there any shot of that? Because again, back in the 70s and through the 90s, it was handguns that people worried about because they were small and easily easy to conceal and so on. And now we're at a point where it's the opposite of a handgun. It's a rifle that you can buy at a Dick's Sporting Goods store near my house. You know, you can pick up a kayak, a ping pong paddle and an AR-15 style assault rifle. It's just madness to me. Is there a chance that that weapon can be again set aside as it was in the 90s? Do you th- is there anything happening? Those of us who don't want just simply not previously convicted peoples to be able to buy an AR-15 style weapon, but that no one can buy an AR-15 style weapon. Do you feel any hope in that little piece of the solution to all of this? I really do. Um because I, again, I think that the national mood is changing and more people are real. And the NRA is weaker than it ever has been. So it's really not the NRA anymore. It's the extremists in the Republican party that are more worried about a primary opponent than winning the general election. And thus they can't cede any ground on guns. But yes, I am optimistic that we will continue to hear more and more lawmakers talking about an assault weapons ban. And I think it's important to recognize that that is not in contradiction to the second amendment. Like you said, there are already limits on the kinds of weapons. You cannot walk down the street with a bazooka or drive a tank down the street. So we can put um, limits in place that do not contradict the Second Amendment. And the other really 
useful piece of data is that we had an assault weapons ban in this country before and the frequency and incidence of mass violence went down. So we have the most objective data possible that this can and will work if we have the political will and lawmakers with the moral courage to do it. So honestly, if you had asked me two years ago, if I thought there was like a national appetite for an assault weapons ban, I would have said no, but I have seen the dialogue change. And I have also seen, you know, the the media cycle after the most recent mass shooting events at the Covenant School in Nashville, at the bank in Louisville, and now in Allen, Texas, like the media cycle is lasting longer than it used to because we are not numb, we are traumatized and um, people are waking up. And I think that the conversation will continue to move forward. And I continue to be optimistic that there is a political path forward for an assault weapons ban in addition to background checks. Does their future, our vote, have a, an opinion about a candidate saying, I will support uh, an assault rifle ban? Is that something you could do, will do, won't do? do you, where, where are you on making that a thing that a candidate needs to be clear about? That's a great question. And, you know, when we developed our platform for candidates, which include the things I've already mentioned, the background checks, yeah. the secure storage laws, red flag laws, funding for gun violence prevention research. We did not include an assault weapons ban sort of in our paragraph about gun violence. That's not to say we won't add it. Um, I would certainly be eager to support a candidate who has the moral courage and the political courage to say that, even if they don't think it's, you know, electorally the most beneficial to say, because that's Mm. when we all lose, when politicians do everything based on polling, but not based on what they know to be right and true. Mm. Um, So that is something I could see their future starting to talk to candidates more about. We, we have this this yeah. meme that, that we put out on, on Instagram that's somebody else put up. So I, I think it's true. I think we, our social media person uh, checked it, but it's, it's, I think it's kind of interesting. It says, just a reminder that the country of Japan has mentally ill people, video games, pornography, only 1.5% of uh, the, the population uh, uh, being Christian, uh, trans people, violent movies, all the things and zero school shootings in Japan and 112 million people, 125 million people. So there are comparable places to what's happening in the United States and all the other conditions are right. It seems that not only is it actually the weapons, but a culture of guns Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be particularly American for whatever, from the Westerns to, I mean, honestly, I try to go by for our grandkids um, some water squirting things for the, for summer, you know, to squirt water at each other. You try to go to a Target and buy one that's not fashioned as a gun. It's just unbelievably mm-hmm. difficult, right? There's something about it. You know, we try to tell them, I don't know, it's a Star Wars laser thing because, you know, they're, they're playing with one. <laughs> so we have a culture of this gun deal that feels like it's we we blame it on the second amendment but i mean all of a sudden people who don't know anything about any amendments are you know very bullish on the second amendment you know <laughs> like well what's the fifth you know that's the one where you don't have to admit that you're guilty you know the sixth nope so we're not amendment people this isn't a culture of which we're like you know really having parliamentary arguments it it just supports a gun culture um, and I've said this to my gun advocate friends, like there's no gun culture in America. And I'm like, <laughs> like they're even pushing against the idea that there's gun culture. I think there is. Do, do you think that's a shift that actually has to happen? Like that we need to sort of, because this has happened on some other public health issues. You, know, you sort of think about, I don't know, smoking and polluting and just some things, you know, that I don't have a long list. Oh, we've gotten better, <laughs> but, but it, do we have to get after this? And I'm not talking I, I'm separate from hunting. Like I'm not really mm-hmm. even thinking about hunters really. Um, but the gun culture thing, what is there something that can be done about that? Or do you think that's something that the other parts of our system that aren't political can be working on or what, what are your thoughts around all that? 
Yes, absolutely. The gu gun culture is one of the drivers. It's our weak gun laws, the number of guns in this country and the gun culture. And the gun culture is not just something that like organically happened. Like this was a deliberate strategy of the marketing people in the gun industry to start to market guns. You know, all these ads that we see with assault rifles and like you've been reissued your man card or whatever, you know, the guns are being marketed to vulnerable individuals who feel their masculinity is being threatened or they feel threatened by, you know, others in our country. And, you know, so the, the gun industry hmm. really just to make more profit is trying to take advantage of this by like perpetuating this gun culture in our country. So this was an incredibly deliberate marketing scheme that has taken over. But I think what we have to remember is that, you know, this, this gun culture represents just a tiny fraction minority of this country. Even a minority of yeah. gun owners in this country do not buy in to this, you know, assault weapons posing in front of Christmas trees crap. Like they're mm -hmm. responsible gun owners. We're just made to think that all gun owners think that way about guns, but that is marketing. That is a successful marketing strategy that we just have to persistently push back against. I was having a conversation with my wife the other day about what groups like the NRA do. And um, I am, I, I'm really opposed to the NRA, but the NRA doesn't give money to people who run for office. It's not like they're on the payroll. And even when we we're talking earlier about PACs, people get confused about how the money moves, that money is used or the power of something like the NRA or any of the gun advocacy groups is used to support candidates who would run against a candidate who wouldn't have their view on guns. So it's really about their the safety of their role as a politician. Like candidates are not thinking, hey, I get paid $30,000 a year from the gun lobby. I have to vote for gun. Like, people really do believe that though. They're, like they don't maybe intellectually believe it, but emotionally they think they're, they're on the dole. And we even anti-money and government people talk like that, right? Like they're on the payroll. <laughs> like, so if that's not how it works, the person doesn't particularly benefit uh, outside of they're going to be reelected or get elected the first time. They don't want political opposition. It seems like that argument then needs to be solved inside the Republican party, right? Because Democrats for the most part, save a few, are in a pretty good spot around guns. But boy, when you have a candidate like the one you ran against or many of the others who are going to run in the next year, they're really afraid that they're going to have a primary. And that primary is going to be somebody more extreme on guns, and they will lose based on that issue. So it seems like we have to be convincing Republican voters to stop supporting it, and really only Republican voters. Um, I, I, obviously, you, you're trying to trying to think about this issue pretty widely, how do you figure out your work between talking to the people who support you to turn out in mass and the people who really need to get to, which is Republican voters changing their mind on this and not rewarding the most extremist candidates in these congressional districts that are most of which, what, Rob, you know the statistics, 70 or 80 percent of, of congressional districts are really not even contested in the first place. So they're not, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're going to lose to somebody in their own party, not somebody from the other party. So they're much more afraid of that. How do you make a shift of this thinking for politics inside the Republican system, as opposed to those of us that are seeing ourselves prodding from the outside on the Republican system. I think we have to educate voters and encourage voters to just for one election cycle, maybe two, to vote on this issue, to leave the Republican party until we get right on this issue. That is the only way to get Republicans in mass to come to our side of this issue. And I like to say that, like, leave them temporarily, get them on the right side of this issue, then go back to them for all the issues, all the other issues that you like them for. But if you disagree with them on guns, use that one cycle, two cycles, they will quickly shift their position on guns. And then you can go, we can go back to a healthy two-party system. Yeah, kind, of, kind of make them, make them one issue voters on this thing, right? Yeah. For this, for this yeah. one cycle, for this one. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just think it's so great what you're yeah. doing. Any, um, uh, yes, absolutely. So great what you're doing. Um, my wife and I watched the, sh the TV show Alone. Uh, where a group of people are dropped off in the middle of nowhere and they have to live all by themselves and whoever lasts the longest wins some money. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting show, but one of the, one of the things that happens near the end is when people 
you know, begin to leave, leave the show. They do the, like this interesting time lapse thing where like whatever shelter they had built for themselves gets torn down and, and it, you know, like they show the time lapse of it disappearing and, and then there's like, it, it looks like they were never there. Um, I think there's a lot of political campaigns, people that run for office that in the aftermath of the volunteers that they put together, what they learned, everything, it's just, they, they go on with their lives and they leave no trace of, of any impact that their campaign had, whether they, you know, you know, if, if they didn't win, uh, what I love about what you're doing is you are taking your campaign and what you learned and you're building something that will, that will last. Uh, you're leaving a trace. There's going mm -hmm. to be a reminder that, that, uh, that you are in, like, it, it wasn't just a, a vanity run for Congress. Like you're actually in this to, to make a change and make a difference. And that's, like that's that's really exciting to me um, because frankly there's far too many campaigns and candidates that that just walk away and and leave the fight and so I, I'm I'm excited to see you know what's next if people are interested in getting involved with uh, with their future our vote like how how can they do that how can they how can they volunteer how can they I'm sure you're taking donations. Like how can they follow along if they just want to learn more? Like what, what are the ways that people could get plugged in? Because this is not just a South Carolina thing. This is a national thing. Right. Great point. Uh, thank you for your kind words. This is a national organization with national goals. Um, our website is theirfutureourvote.org. Folks can go on there, share their information with us so they can join our email list and get updates about what we're up to. We can folks can donate to the advocacy side of the organization or they can click the link to the pack and donate directly to the pack. So two different ways to give. We are on social media on Instagram at their future our vote and then we're on Twitter at their underscore underscore future. Folks can follow me on Twitter and I will easily point the way to find their future and I'm just Annie Andrews MD. Um, but we need, you know, we need, this has to be successful. When I spoke with um, some of the leaders in DC who do the advocacy piece of this, you know, we need this. Children need a game changer in Washington. This effort has to be successful because if I fail, which I vow that I will not, I will give this everything I have. But if I fail, there's no one coming up behind me to try this again next cycle. So we've got one shot to really give our kids the political voice they deserve in Washington, D.C. And that's what we're working on. And we need everyone behind us to make that happen. Annie, do, do you have another minute with us or do you need to go right now? Actually, I'm so sorry. I wish I did, yes, but I have to run, ahead. but we have to come back. Well, thank you. Please do. We're going to keep talking about you. We're going to show your video uh, description of what you do at uh, Their Vote, Our Future. So um, thank you so much. Thanks for sticking with us for a couple of extra minutes. And we know you have other things to to, to be part of. So thank you, Annie. Thank, thank you, Annie, you. for your good work. Bye-bye. So good. Um, Dan, so let's, great. Let's, 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 so play great. That, let's play that video. Um, do you have that one? 73 million. The number of children in the United States. They don't all look alike or sound alike but they all have a voice and they're not afraid to use it. But the one place America's kids don't have a voice is here and it shows. Everything from healthcare to education to how far our kids can go in life is now more determined by their zip code than their genetic code. Our planet is warming, voting rights are under attack and our kids can't even go to school without fear of being shot because they don't have lawyers or lobbyists or million dollar super PACs standing up for them. Until now, I'm Dr. Annie Andrews and I'm starting Their Future, Our Vote, the first of its kind organization dedicated solely to advocating for kids and electing leaders and lawmakers who will do the same. But hold on, right now you're probably asking yourself, who is this woman and why is she telling me all this? So let's back up. First, I'm a mom. And since I was a little girl, I always wanted to be a doctor. That was my plan. And for over 10 years, I've worked as a pediatrician. I've cared for kids fighting cancer, helped parents who couldn't afford life-saving insulin for their child's diabetes or an inhaler for their asthma. And when a little boy was shot in the spine, I was the one to tell him he'd never walk again. 
Then last year, I did something that was never part of my plan. I ran for Congress, and we put up a good fight. But you know what? My fight didn't end on election night. I knew I couldn't just go back to the hospital watching kids needlessly suffer because of bad policy choices being made in Washington. I knew kids needed a voice, and that's what their future is all about. Instead of playing politics with our kids, it's time to get political for our kids. Look, maybe you're turned off by how divisive and partisan things in Washington have become. Maybe you don't care about politics, but if you do care about kids, then it's time to get off the sidelines because America's children deserve a better future. And my message to you is this, there's no one better to build that future, their future, than us. Really great, huh? Just, yeah. I mean, it's well done. I like the color schema. Uh, just seems really, seems really like the right thing. You know what else I like about it, Rob, Dan? I like the fact that Annie is saying, we're not going to wait around for the next generation to come solve this problem. That just really yes. taps in somewhere because I hear so yeah. much of that. You know, I'm around yes. people my age and you're, and people are like, you know what? I'm really hopeful in the, 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 the kids of the future. Yeah. Uh, like really just going to put this on them. Like you can't solve it <laughs> between now and when the 12 year old or the 18 year old. Is, um, and, and it's just a bad bet. It's just a bad bet to think that generationalism is going to solve this because had that been the case, I think maybe the, you know, the hippie generation wouldn't have turned into the, uh, okay. Boomer generation. So, uh, I, I like it too. She's taking real responsibility and has that sense. Uh, yep. we need to step up and, and do something about this. And, and that needs to be done. Needs to be done now. Yeah. One of our faiths, Dr. Yep. Annie Andrews. So great. Well, we had uh Leaf in the uh, in the chat was was, yeah. was that, what 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 platform is was was Leaf chatting on there, Dan? Uh Leaf is over on Facebook. On Facebook. We but by the way, the reason I yeah, asked that Mike, question, if you yeah, don't know, is so. that we do Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all the places. So if you're only on one of the platforms, you might not see all the chats or the names we're about to mention here yeah. for all the people. So uh Leaf, head over to YouTube as well. We'd love to have you over there on our YouTube channel. Yeah. Judith and Jim, Lisa, Alex. Uh, yeah, it's good to see all of you. There's a there's yeah. a new one. Was it Lizzie? Was there a, was there a new new name I saw in there? Oh yeah, Lizelle. From, from Hong Kong. Lizel. Excellent. Lizel. Wonder what time it is in Hong Kong. Lizel, what time is it in Hong Kong? <laughs> Love to know that. I probably just ask my phone. He would also tell me. Uh, all right, is that good good for today? We could ask Keith, we could ask Keith Davenport's phone. <laughs> Like, is that who it was that had the problem? Yeah. That, uh, that's was awesome. Keith. Keith. Yeah. 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 Let's have that guy on. Just, hey, um, uh, tomorrow we're having a person named Zach Hunt on. Zach is oh, nice. uh, an author. There's a new book out about uh, thinking better about God and, and is, is good in his religious religious narratives. And he's also what for for me is truly one of the funniest people on Twitter. There was a period yes. of time where I, I, yes. my Twitter life was finding people that I found enjoyable and fun and funny. That is that is long gone gone. Uh, <laughs> unless I see Zach's uh, yes. tweets, the he is just truly a smart, smart, funny person. So um, we'll probably dampen all of that out of him tomorrow. So I don't want to say yeah, that. I have, high, but he I have never. I have never met Zach, but he is absolutely one of my favorite Twitter follows. Yeah. Well, uh, tomorrow, Rob, uh, he's going to be here on this uh, on this podcast and, same time. Yeah. Didn't he have a little bit of a billboard campaign in Nashville? Gonna talk he about did. That? Yeah. I bet yeah. We'll talk he did. About he launched. He launched a book and then put up billboards with the, some of the phrases from the book uh, right in the heart of you know a certain Christian culture, and that's what he's. That's what yeah. the book is about and what he's up to. So anyway, tomorrow's appointment appointment level listening. For any, Look, mm. if anyone's still listening to this thing now, you're our kind of person. So uh, you will definitely <laughs> listen. You'll definitely listen to Zach. So we'd love to love to have you uh, join us tomorrow, 9 a.m.-ish Central Time, which you, know, you can do the math, 10 if you're on the East Coast. Of course, those of you in the mountains are 8 and then 7 o'clock in the morning for those of you in California. Yeah, buck 99, Jim, we're talking about you and Mike and the rest of you out there in California. So um, we'll see you tomorrow. Bye, everybody. Goodbye now.